This podcast is informed by lived experience and professional practice, but it is not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. If this episode prompts you to seek further help, and if you live in Victoria, please contact us via our hub service. Details are in our show notes. If you're listening outside of Victoria, please get in touch with the Butterfly Foundation. It was right there in front of my face saying, you need to do something about this, this needs to change. And, you know, that was on one side and the other side was like, no, hold on, hold on. It's never too early to say, you know what, I'm noticing some behaviours I'm starting to engage in or some thoughts are creeping back in. It's not about feeling bad that you've fallen off and it's all too hard and it's never going to get better. Sometimes, you know, fall down eight times, stand up that ninth time. Support is always available no matter what stage of your journey you're at. Welcome to this special Body Image and Eating Disorders Awareness Week episode of Candor Conversations. My name's Bree, and if you're new here, welcome. Candid Conversations is a podcast from Eating Disorders Victoria, where we get real about the ups, downs and sideways of recovery. We hope that each episode gives you something new to ponder and reminds you that even when it may feel like it, you are not alone in this journey. On today's episode, we are delving deeper into the theme of Body Image and Eating Disorders Awareness Week, which this year is Know the Signs, Act Early. Yep, it is all about early intervention. In a moment, we'll hear why early intervention is so important for eating disorders. But we want to say from the outset that at EDV, we believe that acting early means at the earliest possible time for you, no matter your length of illness or your attempts at recovery. It's never too late to seek help or to start recovery, as you'll hear in this episode. So to set the scene, I think it's important we get a better understanding of the concept of early intervention. Why is it considered so important when it comes to eating disorders? I spoke to Monique, who works in policy at Eating Disorders Victoria, and asked her to give me an explanation about what the evidence tells us around early intervention. So Mon, let's start with the basics. How do we define early intervention for eating disorders? So early intervention is defined as identifying eating disorder symptoms as they emerge or re-emerge, coupled with the implementation of targeted support and specialist treatment for as long as an individual requires it. And is there a particular time frame that this needs to occur in in order for it to be considered early intervention? So typically early intervention for eating disorders is regarded as intervention at less than three years since the onset of symptoms. Okay, so the definition is pretty straightforward and one would assume, as with any illness, that the earlier you address it, the better the outcomes. So what does the research actually tell us about the outcomes for early intervention? That's a really great question, Brie, and the research shows us that individuals who receive early intervention are twice as likely to experience the remission of symptoms. It can be helpful to also understand the changes that occur in the brain that give merit to early intervention. So eating disorders most commonly emerge between the ages of 12 to 25. This is a significant stage of the development of the area of the brain that is responsible for understanding consequences of action, problem solving, and controlling impulses. So the concern with eating disorders is that these connections in the brain can remain less developed, leading to reliance and then stronger development of the area of the brain that is responsible for emotions, impulses, aggression, and instinctive behaviour. Okay, so the evidence is pretty compelling, but I'm curious to know, 
how many people are actually getting help early for their eating disorder? Because if we look at the statistics around eating disorders and help seeking, I'm assuming it's not that many. So that's a really interesting question because when we look at the research, the rates of early intervention are really low in the community. One systematic review found that the average length of time that individuals experience symptoms before seeking treatment is two and a half years for anorexia nervosa, four and a half years for bulimia nervosa, and five and a half years for binge eating disorder. This is also supported by another Australian study that found that it takes around five years on average to seek treatment after the onset of symptoms. But another really important statistic that I really want listeners to know is that 75% of all individuals who access treatment at any stage of illness experience full recovery and maintain a good quality of life. So to anyone listening who didn't receive early intervention, this is a good reminder that you're not alone. The majority of people with eating disorders do not get help early, but that doesn't mean that all hope for recovery is lost. EDV Ambassador Ashlyn first started experiencing an eating disorder around the age of 17. It wasn't until 13 years later that she finally sought professional help. I remember when I was eight years old, I was in the schoolyard with a few friends and one of the girls asked in the group, how much did everybody weigh? And that's a moment that really sticks out to me as one of the pivotal moments in my life. At the time, never thought about it as being any way significant, but what followed through, it was something that really was the catalyst to, to start everything else. As someone who was kind of a an introverted extrovert, on the outside, it seemed like I had lots of friends. I was always surrounded by people. I got on well. On the inside, I really struggled. I really panicked when I was in groups. I felt like I was always wondering what would I say next or berating myself about what I'd already said, you know, thinking I'd messed up in some way. And then when I was a little bit older, I was about 17, I found myself in a relationship that was quite toxic, was quite domineering. And I think for me, that perfect storm of being highly sensitive, very much caring about what other people thought, being a perfectionist, but also really struggling with the chaos around me was the culmination of what led me to my lived experience with bulimia. And it was really, when it started, it felt like a bit of a release, but it became a vicious cycle. And it was something that I really leaned on as my method of coping and something that felt like I had some semblance of control, even though I realize now, you know, that definitely wasn't the case. Did you have that sort of personal insight, those sort of internal alarm bells ringing that maybe you needed to seek some help? I think deep down I knew. And the fact that it was something that I never spoke about or, you know, that I kept a secret from everyone around me for the whole 13 years, no, not one person knew apart from me. I think the fact that I felt like it was something shameful was a real signal to me and especially now that I knew I knew it, what it was when the stories that I would tell myself around it made it okay that it was actually more for my well-being rather than as a way to control my environment or as a way to feel better about myself. Did anyone ever notice any signs that maybe something wasn't quite right or were there potential opportunities where someone might have intervened that could have been useful? Yeah, it was a difficult one because for me, 
I became quite good at concealing that there was anything wrong with me. And I guess that people pleaser nature never wanted anyone to feel like I was a burden on them or that, you know, there was something that wrong that they had to think about or, you know, and I'm not saying there was anything wrong. I don't feel like any of us needs to be fixed. We maybe just need a little bit of handholding along the way. But there were definitely points where I got very controlled in what I was eating. I got quite obsessive around things. And then visually, I became, you know, quite thin. And what happened initially was I started getting compliments on how well I was looking. So it really, rather than visually outwardly seeing it as a cry for help, you know, that maybe there were big changes happening in quite a short amount of time. It was more so seen as, oh, you look great. You know, what are you doing? And like that kind of thing. So it was a bit of a positive reinforcement. And that was initially, there were times definitely where it went to the extreme. And a few friends definitely called me aside and said, hey, you know, I think you've taken this weight loss thing too far. But that was kind of really it. So I would say, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I've I've probably taken it too far. Like I'll ease off now and probably take a a step back on the old exercise and things like that. But I think for me and, you know, when I went on eventually to tell my husband and my family, they were shocked because they they said, you know, they had no idea. They knew that Mm -hmm. there were times where, yes, maybe my weight went a bit low, but then I came back, you know, and then they, they said, I felt like you looked healthy and you were, you know, you've always eaten well, you've exercised, you've you've on paper done the right thing. So they never felt like there was anything wrong. I think that really speaks to the pervasive nature of diet culture and how so many of us can be quite blind to what's happening right in front of our eyes. So I'm wondering, Ash, where were you at when those blinkers started to come off and you started to realize that, okay, actually, I think there is really something here and I am going to need to start to seek some help. The the fast-paced nature around me and the environment just was a, a really a perfect storm or an unperfect storm because it led me one day to wake up on the bathroom floor after having a panic attack. And it wasn't my first that week, but it was a real capitalist at that point for change because it was at that point, you know, I knew I I never felt great. I never felt like I was thriving, you know, or felt well or, you know, full of energy or with that vitality. You know, I just felt I never had energy. I was never at a point where I felt well. And my colleague at the time said to me, Ash, like, what's going on? Something's got to change here. And it was from that point that I started investigating tools and practices and strategies that would help support my well-being and I guess my physical health, but also my mental health. And the two very much went hand in hand. It was a point where I had to kind of unlearn everything that I knew about well-being. And rather than that, do more, be more, push more, it was really being more okay with that ability to sit with myself and to move slow and to nurture and, you know, all the things that meditation, yoga, mindfulness teaches us. But again, 
had to take it to the extreme at the beginning. The reason why I was doing it wasn't necessarily for the right reasons. It was because, you know, I, I felt that compulsion, just like bulimia. I was like, you have to do that perfect. And you had to be so restricted and rigid on yourself that it actually caused me more harm than good. I eventually then, you know, in that kind of perfectionist nature, wanted to learn more and I couldn't get enough and went on to become a teacher. And through that process, I had to do what was called an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And that program changed everything for me because, as I said, it was the, the point in which I had to turn that direction of my attention back inward. And I had to sit with myself and I had to really start to look at, you know, those really uncomfortable, those really hard, you know, voices in my head, those kind of habitual ways of being my my patterns that weren't helpful, you know, and actually look at my bulimia and say, you know, what is this? Where is this coming from? And rather than using it as a way, as a crutch, you know, or as a way to numb out when things got difficult, I started having these tools and strategies to help me rather than always leaning on that. Instead, you know, I would go to a yoga class or I would meditate for a little while or I would journal. And it wasn't like, you know, a light switch one day, it all just changed. It was a very slow process, you know, over a number of years, but it became a much more helpful and conducive tool to help me through. And eventually through a training that I was in in Bali, Years ago, it was the point where I turned to myself and I said, this has got to stop. You need to go home and get some help. So from that, I went home and I reached out to a friend and I didn't necessarily share what was going on, but I said, have you got any recommendations for someone that I could go to speak to? And that's what led me on my path to recovery because that man that I eventually found to speak with, he was the one who held my hand up to the point where I was able to tell my partner and from then was able to tell everyone else, which each time just felt like another weight was lifted off my shoulders. Carrying around your eating disorder by yourself, Ash, for all that time must have been incredibly challenging. Can you tell us what it was like to finally tell someone, to finally tell your husband, the person that you're closest to in the world, what had privately been going on for you? It was the best and the worst day of my life, I would say. Um, that feeling of holding on to it, it felt like the heaviest bag that you had on your back constantly. And through my journey of, I guess, diving in, you know, with meditation and mindfulness, it was like looking at the biggest, ugliest mirror that you could possibly look at. And it was right there in front of my face saying, you need to do something about this. This needs to change. And, you know, that was on one side and the other side was like, no, hold on, hold on. But I knew that it wasn't helpful. I knew that it wasn't going to end well if it stayed with me. And I knew that with my, my husband and I, ever since we met, and that was nearly 12 years ago now, our motto has been open and honest. And that was the one part of me that I was never able to be honest with him about. I didn't lie, but I never shared it with him. And that felt like, for me, it was a goal to tell him before we got married. And we, I didn't. I couldn't. I felt like I wasn't in a position to do that. And that's always been a real regret of mine. But 
when I got to that moment and that day where I came to speak with him, my therapist recommended that I write a letter first. That was my initial step was to write a letter with all the all that I wanted to share with him because I was afraid that, you know, I wouldn't I'd be caught up in the emotion and I wouldn't be able to speak what I wanted to actually say or his response, you know, I would be met with, you know, something that was difficult. And one Saturday morning, it just kind of not came up in conversation, but there was a natural point. And we sat on the couch and I got my letter and I could not make eye contact with him. I had to look at the page and I was crying as I was reading, but he was incredible. Like he just sat there and listened and was so, I'm sure it was in shock too, but was just so attentive and really held that space for me to be able to share what I needed to share with the most compassionate heart that you could possibly ask for. And, you know, as I finished, I was very concerned about him and how he would take it and how he would feel because he's my favorite person in the world and I never wanted to hurt him or to make him feel like he didn't do a good enough job in any way. And I was very clear to try and articulate that as I could in my letter, but looking up and seeing his eyes after I shared that letter and the level of pain that I could see, not necessarily from him, but the pain that he felt for me to have, and that's what he said, for me to have to have gone through that on my own for so long. That look, I will it will be ingrained in my memory forever. It was just, it was so hard to see your favorite person in the world have that feeling. And he, you know, he said, look, it's a lot. And I, I don't necessarily know how to respond in this moment. But he was like, just know that I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad that you told me. And I'm here, I'm with you and we will, I will support you through this, like as we get you better. And at that moment, that's all I needed to hear. You know, that was the the thing that I've been searching for, for those 13 years. So Mm -hmm. it was really, really difficult and took up every ounce of bravery and courage that I possibly had. But it was the thing that would change the course of the trajectory from that moment on. I think that is such a beautiful example of how to respond when someone discloses an eating disorder or any issue or any mental illness really in general. You know, you don't necessarily need to have all the answers or you don't need to try and fix things straight away. But that response of just unwavering love and support is really what anyone wants to hear in a situation like that. So kudos to your husband for responding so well. As you've spoken about your eating disorder being a coping mechanism, something that you turn to to help you get through when things were stressful, how do you manage to cope with stress or anxiety or that drive for perfectionism in more healthy ways now? Some small things and big things, you know, I think one thing that was really pivotal for me, firstly was therapy, you know, that was huge because that felt like I had someone subjective that wasn't tied to me emotionally or you know from a a blood perspective that could just hold space for me when I needed to that I felt like it was a safe and supportive space so I could go and I could be say anything and not feel judged so that was definitely number one the second which is in with my partner with my now husband it was that promise to continue to be open and honest and he said to me you know as a carer 
he said to me, from now on, any time that you, he was very conscientious in terms of asking, you know, what triggers those thoughts from what I knew at the time. And it was an ongoing discovery and still is. But he said, you know, can we talk about what triggers this for you? Like, how do we minimize those triggers? Or if there is a point where you feel like you've been triggered, if I'm not there, do you promise that you'll call me or you will text me and say, I'm having one of these thoughts and he was like no matter what it is I'll pick up the phone or I'll be right with you and we'll work through together so that was a huge thing actually because there are there were definitely so many times and there there is now but they are a lot further apart where a thought might pop up a very random thought and even actually in me just in those initial days when I would actually just text him and I like if he was out and I would say having one of those thoughts, even the act of me putting it onto a WhatsApp or a text message really lightened the load and it actually released the grip of that for me. So that was a big one. And the other things for me, as mentioned, you know, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, and those practices look very different these days than they did then. But that, whatever way it is, and journaling as well, I write a little half page every morning when I wake up just how I'm feeling as a way to not have to hold on to all those things internally. So they're big ones for me. And as I said, creating that support system around you. So that might look different from week to week, but whether it's a therapist or, you know, more holistically Chinese doctor or nutritionist or whatever it might be, they've all been massive parts of my recovery as well. And finally, Ash, to anyone who's listening who, like you, may have been carrying around the secret of an eating disorder for a long time, or maybe they want to seek recovery and haven't quite got there yet, or they're going through recovery currently, what would you say to them? I would say hope and brighter days are ahead, always. There is always hope, regardless of how it is that you're feeling, what it is that you're going through at the moment, and that it can get better. You know, recovery is possible, and I'm a testament to that because my lived experience was long, you know, and I know we don't necessarily talk about specifics like that, but I think it's important to know in terms of that longevity of it and how much that it had a hold. And even regardless of how long that went on, that I was still able to find recovery. And at that time, you know, if you'd have told me, and especially when I was writing the depths of it to go on and speak to someone about it or, you know, to share. Like at one point I felt like I will never, ever be able to tell my, my husband or my parents or, you know, anyone around me. I felt so much shame around it that I felt like I was nearly being choked or held hostage, you know, and that I thought, my relationship with them would have changed forever. I was terrified, you know, that they would see me differently. And to be honest, and I mean, from the bottom of my heart, our relationships across all of those different people only got stronger. I feel for me, and it's been a testament to that notion. And I know Brene Brown talks a lot about it, about like how vulnerability sparks vulnerability. And I think that from me being able to share in that place to say, you know what, I'm not perfect, but no one is. That I think, you know, being able to share that you're only human and you're finding your way and doing the best that you can, just put one foot in front of the other. I think when you can start to break those walls down and have those conversations, that it also allows the other person to feel the same. So 
those relationships have actually only become stronger for me. But I think too, you know, that point of just knowing that recovery can be a reality. For me, if I'd have heard stories of recovery during that period of time, it wasn't something that I came across. It wasn't something that I actively searched out. But I know for me that when we talked about early intervention, if that was around for me at the time, I think that would have made all the difference. Obviously, hindsight's a great thing, but recovery can be a reality. And it was something that at the time and a period of my life, I never, ever would have believed that. But I do believe it now because it's my experience and I'm living with it day by day. It might not happen overnight, but it will happen. So if the majority of people like Ash aren't getting help early for their eating disorder, it begs the question, why? What is it about eating disorders and our health system that can make early help seeking so hard? I spoke to Gemma, who is a telehealth nurse at EDV. Gemma also works in a hospital eating disorder program, and she knows firsthand how complex health seeking can be. While Gemma now supports people entering into eating disorder treatment, she was once on the other side as a patient. I asked Gemma what she sees as some of the key reasons as to why early help seeking can be so challenging, and also what we can do about it as individuals, as healthcare professionals, and in society more broadly. So I think from both my professional experience and my lived experience, the first barrier to accessing treatment, not actually realising what you're experiencing is a problem. I guess the nature of an eating disorder can often be quite egocentric, uh, meaning that the eating disorder starts, you know, working a way to make you believe that its values and priorities are your values and priorities. Not only that, but these goals you're working towards are also celebrated and idealised in society. So many people that are on diet are praised for their efforts, their behaviour is normalised and they're idolised for, you know, quote unquote, having willpower and that they more often than not will receive compliments if they lose weight too. Eating disorders are um, often developed as a means of coping and in a way to feel in control. And I guess if someone unwell feels they're achieving this purpose through their eating disorder, the desire for recovery is often just not there. If we feel like something is helping us or we're achieving something, the thought of going against it which is, you know, working on recovery can feel really wrong. I guess another thing that can sort of impact, you know, people accessing treatment is the notion of not feeling sick enough or deserving of treatment. And I guess that sort of comes from sort of thinking, you know, you might have recognised, okay, maybe what I'm doing is not great. I've got a bit of a problem here, but there's other people that are worse than me. It's not that bad. And therefore I don't deserve any help. And this is can often be compounded by so many factors, including, you know, media stereotypes of what an eating disorder should look like or what they might be doing. And it can also be, you know, this this idea of what is sick enough can be solidified by health professionals, unfortunately, the bias and the discrimination from people not understanding that anyone can experience an eating disorder, any gender, any nationality, socioeconomic status, and any body size. And I guess that sort of leads on to as well the um, stigma related to seeking help. Unfortunately, there's still so much stigma around eating disorders and mental illness in general, really. It can feel really intimidating asking for help 
help and the fear of invalidation that can be really disempowering as well. And, you know, it can be really confronting disclosing behaviours that, you know, you might feel shame about, but know that there's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, everyone and everybody um, and every experience is worthy of support. And that's not only if it's your first time experiencing, you know, some symptoms, even if you've been unwell in the past and you've been in recovery and now you're relapsing, it's never too early to say, you know what, I'm noticing some behaviours I'm starting to engage in or some thoughts are creeping back in. Um, don't, you know, it's not about feeling bad about that you've you've fallen off and it's, you know, you've, you've lost it and it's all too hard and it's never going to get better. Sometimes, you know, fall down eight times, stand up that ninth time and support is always available no matter what stage of your journey you're at. So in your experience, Gemma, what can people start to practically do to start to overcome some of these barriers to help seeking? I think I think being really honest with yourself that, you know, it's okay to admit that maybe part of you is afraid of letting go, maybe afraid of um, what your future, you know, will look like if these, you know, these coping skills are taken away from you and that, you know, your motivation to, to ask for help and engage in recovery changes across, you know, from minute to minute to, to different stages of your recovery. Sometimes you might think, I need to hit rock bottom and then I'll be able to turn this around. But you don't actually have to hit a rock bottom. It's bad enough as it is if you're, if you know, if an eating disorder or, you know, disordered eating or, you know, preoccupation with weight and shape and, you know, feeling out of control and not being able to, you know, have a, a peaceful relationship with food is getting the better of you. You don't have to get any worse. You're deserving of help at any time. And I think the first thing is, again, being really honest with yourself, maybe, you know, doing a writing exercise. What are the pros of my, you know, what I'm doing? What are the cons of it? What am, what am I missing out on? What it's, what's the impact it's having on my, my wider world? And if you can start to think, look, maybe, maybe this is not as, as it sort of, you know, sounded it was going to be like in the beginning. And maybe this isn't what I really want to do at the moment. Finding someone you trust to talk to, it could be a friend, a family member, a health professional, or alternatively, reach out to EDV. We've got an amazing telehealth team of nurses, of counsellors, and you can book in online and have a chat with us. It doesn't have to be, I've got an eating disorder. It could just be, I'm not sure um, about how this is going. Maybe I want some help. Maybe I don't know what help is going to look like and we can explore that with you. Another thing you can do is start to, you know, educate yourself about what you're going through. You know, sometimes we are so torn in these behaviours because it's so either normalised in society or normalised for us because it's familiar. But jumping on EDV's website and understanding sometimes when you can see what you're going through is actually something that's, you know, a documented issue. It can help us start to understand ourselves. Well, maybe this isn't this isn't a good thing. Maybe I thought this was unique to me, but this is actually something that's a problem and that I can actually have help for. But most importantly, be really kind to yourself. I think, you know, don't feel bad, you know, or guilty that this is your fault or that this is something that you should just be able to snap out of, or I've just got to eat healthy and everything will be fine. You know, eating disorders aren't a choice. Disordered eating is something that affects so many people and people often, you know, more than not suffer in silence and asking for help can be scary. So be gentle, be kind, find people that you feel safe with. You know, here at EDV, we're always here to listen or if there's someone else that you feel like you can trust, maybe bringing a friend with you or a family member to an appointment if that makes you feel a little bit more safe so that you're not on your own, but know that you are worthy of help and that you don't have to suffer in silence. And of course, we know it's not all on the individual, is it? 
our health system and society in general really needs to improve and adapt to ensure that people feel comfortable to seek help early and when they do reach out for help, that they're really met with an appropriate response. So Gemma, what would you like to see change or improve in this regard? Yeah, it's something that I get very passionate about. I think it's it's frustrating. I think, you know, the amount of stories I've heard of people, you know, that do ask for help and they, you know, don't get it in a timely manner or they get in, they feel invalidated by reaching out. But I think, I, tr- you know, we try not to focus on that. You know, we focus on, you know, educating healthcare professionals about eating disorders. I think sometimes, you know, it's not people's fault often, whether it be a GP or um, whoever, you know, that they have to they have to learn a lot about a lot of different conditions and sometimes if their knowledge isn't up to speed on the ins and outs of an eating disorder it's not necessarily their fault but it's something that as an organisation we're trying to support healthcare providers to to know the signs to act early and to support individuals in accessing help but I think also supporting individuals to advocate for themselves I think it can be I mean it's hard enough asking for help but you are more than entitled to to speak up about what you're needs are and what you're going through and if you're not happy with that response um, asking for some extra help or asking to speak to someone else whether that be for an individual themselves if you're thinking I'm not getting heard here and I'm or I'm being stigmatized about my weight or my shape you're entitled to speak up and that might be a learning situation that the next person that walks through the door and might not have the confidence to speak up about being um, discriminated against that you've you've just helped them as well so I think particularly for families as well if you're feeling like your loved one isn't getting um, the support that they need, um, speaking up and doing what you can. I think as much as our healthcare system is very much under the pump at the moment and um, struggling at bursting at the seams with, you know, demand. But I think the end goal is that as a healthcare professional, our goal is to do no harm and to help people. And I think we've all got room to learn. And I think it comes from teaching and supporting people to understand where where things are at with eating disorders and that, you know, you don't need to be skeletal and walking through the door to be validated and be sick. People um in all shapes and sizes, any ethnicity or socioeconomic status or age or gender, anyone can be affected and no one is more more deserving or least deserving of help. But I think it comes from the system. We need to change. We need to improve. We need to start understanding this illness better. And that's something that hopefully with time, hopefully soon, more of a shift will happen with that. And it is happening. We do see that more and more people are interested in trying to learn and upskill. And if they don't know that they will refer on and say, look, this isn't my specialty, but come talk to EDV and we can help you find someone that is inclusive or is understanding and supportive of what you're going through. So I guess that's something that as a, as a as a system we're working on, but never be afraid to speak up and advocate for yourself. That is your human right to get, you know, to be cared for and to be supported. And if you're struggling at any point with that process, please reach out to telehealth nurses at EDV and we can definitely support you in making sure that you can access the treatment you deserve and are worthy of. But in a wider sort of sense in terms of our, our culture, I think the more that we can start to dismantle this diet culture that we have so you know if you're in the tea room at work and someone's like oh I'm not going to eat this because I'm on this diet sometimes 
when we're just too exhausted, we just kind of go, look, that's that person's journey. But sometimes, you know, if you're feeling brave, you can you can start to have those conversations. And more often than not, there's someone else sitting in that room also feeling really uncomfortable or feeling, you know, concerned about this conversation. I think the more we can bring this to light and unpack this, this stuff that we're carrying. And, you know, it's so ingrained in society. It's so normalized that dieting is the only way. And the more weight someone loses, the more better they are as a person but we know that's not the truth and we know that it's actually setting up future generations of failure as well so I think that the sooner um, we can we can build that confidence to to dismantle this culture and just kind of say you know what it's not helping anyone it's actually problematic and I think the more people have those conversations and stand up and speak, it enables someone else to then do the same. And ultimately, we want to be in a society where people can feel appreciated and accepted. And I think it it starts from an individual. It starts, you know, from healthcare providers. This, everyone plays a part in this in this journey of helping people feel accepted and supported. But I think if we all do our part, it's going to make a huge difference, and especially for our future generations as well. I want to thank and acknowledge the guests on today's podcast and just acknowledge anyone out there listening who is having trouble with seeking help at the moment. We know that everyone's situation is unique. Everyone has different pressures and different factors that influence their help-seeking journey. And a reminder, if you do ever need support and you live in Victoria, please just get in touch with us. We have an amazing team here at EDV, people like Gemma who are available on the phone or through a video call who come to this with no judgment, but with plenty of understanding and also just really helpful, practical advice. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us at EDV. Jump onto our website, www.eatingdisorders.org.au. All the links to our services are there. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded the Boon Wurrung and Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. <laughs>